this program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Majority Report, The Rachel Maddow Show, Counterspin, The Young Turks, The Progressive, The Onion Radio News, and Comedian Lee Camp. And a note for our more sensitive listeners, this episode may cause you to feel something other than pride in or admiration for America. I won't hold my breath, but I imagine there's going to be a lot of apologies from the corporate media, those right-wing blowhards. Really, uh, the the totality of the establishment in this country, uh, I imagine pretty soon they're going to uh, apologize to Jeanine Garofalo, who was one of the first people I ever heard who said that curveball was full of shite. You all remember Curveball. He was supposedly one of the premier sources of intelligence. And I use that in air quotes. I'm not actually doing air quotes, but I'm trying to imply them with my voice. The intelligence that led us into a war of choice that ended up killing over, in very conservative estimates, over 100,000 innocent civilians in Iraq. And precipitated a nine, ten-year involvement there, leaving behind one of the world's largest embassies. A millions of refugees, both those who exiled the country and became refugees within the country. And of course, I haven't seen this on uh, U.S. corporate media because they're too busy talking about the amazing appearance of Sarah Palin on the Today Show as a guest host. The earth-shattering news that Morning uh, broadcast media is essentially uh, just a, an extension of their promotional department. And more proof that you can be an utter failure at your job. You can be a total idiot. And by total idiot, I'm not saying that without sympathy for Sarah Palin. Because John McCain also deserves, if not uh, as much, then more responsibility for nearly putting this person in a position of being the vice president of the United States, perhaps even the president of the United States. So she's on uh, the Today Show, sucking up all the oxygen. Meanwhile, the UK Independent reports that uh, on Sunday... As it was in a BBC Two documentary, Rafid Ahmed Alwan Al Janabi, and we knew the curveballs. The curveball was a suspect uh, or sus, uh, a suspicious source of intelligence, but now the guy's coming right out and saying it. He fabricated. Uh, through whole cloth, apparently, claims about Iraq's weapons of mass destruction and smiles as he confirms how he made the whole thing up. 
My main purpose was to topple the tyrant in Iraq because the longer this dictator remains in power, the more Iraqi people will suffer from this regime's oppression. Uh, maybe he hasn't checked the news lately, but he was... I don't know that he was responsible per se because he had been completely written off by the CIA, completely written off by the Defense Department, completely written off by uh, administration officials under the uh, Clinton administration. But he was a perfect uh, coat rack to hang the, the lies that the Bush administration wanted to... Um, foist on the American public with their handmaidens in the corporate media. He claimed to have overseen the building of a mobile biological laboratory when he sought political asylum in Germany in 1999. That's when he was first considered to be a joke. His lies were presented, quote, as facts and conclusions based on solid intelligence by Colin Powell, U.S. Secretary of State, when making the case for war at the U.N. Security Council in February 2003. Remember his, like, little, little container of talcum powder that if it broke, everyone uh, sitting at the Security Council meeting in the U.N. would suddenly have all their athletes' foot disappear? Janabi says none of it was true. When it's put to him, Quote, we went to war in Iraq on a lie, and that lie was your lie. He simply replies, yes. U.S. officials sexed up Mr. Janabi's drawings of mobile biological weapons labs to make them more presentable. This is from uh, Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, General Powell's former chief of staff, who has been on a four- or five-year redemption tour. I brought the White House team in to do the graphics, he says, adding how intelligence was being worked to fit around the policy. As for his former boss, quote, I don't see any way on earth that Secretary Powell doesn't feel almost a rage about curveball and the way he was used in regards to that intelligence. Almost a rage? Colin Powell was so easily duped? No, he was being a team player. And he and Wilkerson, there's simply not enough redemption in the world for them, nor is there for their bosses. So it's just one more uh, nail in the coffin. Of course, you know, this, this is ancient history now. This happened almost, almost 12 years ago. So it's really, there's no point in discussing it. And uh, yet we can celebrate the fact that the official figures in March, according to the AP, showed that 112 people were killed by violence in Iraq. So congratulations, Iraq. That is the lowest monthly death toll for Iraqis since our tax dollars funded an illegal war and invasion of your country and killed by the most conservative estimates put out by our own government, at least 100,000 innocent civilians. Only 357 of you were wounded last month, and the total death toll included 78 civilians, 22 policemen, and 12 soldiers.
So that beats the uh, other record of how many people died in Iraq since uh, 2003 uh, in November 2009 when only 122 died. So congratulations, Iraq. High on the hill was a lonely goat herd lay, hood lay, hood Hope lay, you had fun. Loud was the voice of the lonely goat herd lay, hood lay, hood oh, oh. Of course, we're still up to it in uh, Afghanistan. But uh, we didn't need any uh, fake intelligence, apparently, there to occupy that country for 12 years in a another seemingly never-ending expression of war. The positions I'm taking now on the budget and a host of other issues. If we had been having this discussion 20 years ago, or even 15 years ago, would have been considered squarely centrist positions. What's changed is the center of the Republican Party. Cap and trade. Uh, was originally proposed by conservatives and Republicans as a market-based solution to solving environmental problems. There is a reason why there's a little bit of confusion uh, in, in the Republican primary about health care and the individual mandate since it originated as a conservative idea. Now suddenly this is some socialist overreach. Ronald Reagan, who, as I recall, is not accused of being a, a tax-and-spend socialist, understood repeatedly that when the deficit started to get out of control, that for him to make a deal, he would have to propose both spending cuts and tax increases. Did it multiple times. He could not get through a Republican primary today. Ronald Reagan could not get through a Republican primary today. President Obama speaking yesterday to the Associated Press about how much the Republican Party has shifted to the right. How the Republicans' own policies, its own heroes, uh, would be denounced as too left-wing by today's radicalized conservative Republicans. Uh, this is a true thing about the Republican Party, and it is a potentially devastating thing for independent and centrist voters to realize about the Republican Party. And so the administration has been repeatedly making this case for a while now. When Vice President Biden makes the case, he says things like, this is not your father's Republican Party anymore. President Obama himself has been throwing his own policies back into the faces of his Republican critics, trying to get them to acknowledge that they themselves used to support those policies. Speaking at a fundraiser last month, the president said, quote, in 2008, the guy I was running against, the Republican nominee, he didn't deny that climate change might be a problem. 
He thought it was a good idea for us to ban torture. He was on record as having supported immigration reform. President Obama there making the case that the policies embraced by the last Republican presidential nominee, even just in the last election cycle, are now seen as way too left-wing for today's Republicans. Cap and trade, the Republicans in 2008, Senator McCain supported that. The DREAM Act, the Republicans in 2008, Senator McCain supported that. And a ban on torture. John McCain, himself a survivor of prison torture after he was shot down and captured in Vietnam. John McCain led the fight within his own party to ban torture. And then he won his party's nomination for president of the United States. Well, Governor, I'm astonished that you haven't found out what waterboarding is. I know what waterboarding is, Senator. Then I'm astonished that you would think such a, uh, such a torture would be inflicted on anyone in our ca- who we are held captive, and anyone could believe that that's not torture. It's in violation of the Geneva Conventions. It's in violation of, of existing law. John McCain beat Mitt Romney in that contest. He won the presidential nomination in 2008. And during that campaign, Mr. Romney repeatedly refused to say that waterboarding a person was a way of torturing that person. Did Mitt Romney's point of view win out in today's Republican Party? Is that another one of these issues in which even the politics of John McCain and Sarah Palin in 2008 are too left-wing now for today's Republicans? We may be about to find out. Every time the Romney campaign thinks that the George W. Bush presidency no longer lurks in the shadows of Mr. Romney's own efforts to capture the nomination this year, out comes a sinewy hand from under the bed to grab at Mr. Romney's bare ankles. Today, three years after the Freedom of Information Act requests were filed for it, today, the Wired magazine reporter Spencer Ackerman and the National Security Archive at George Washington University finally got their hands on a document written by this man. He's Philip Zelikow. He ran the 9-11 Commission. He was Condoleezza Rice's lawyer at the State Department. At the beginning of the Obama presidency in 2009, the Obama administration released memos in which the Bush administration had told itself that torturing people was legal. That as they read the law, CIA interrogators couldn't be prosecuted for torturing anyone because torture was legal, as they saw it. Torture is not legal. Torture is illegal. And as a top lawyer at the Bush State Department, Philip Zelikow circulated a memo within the administration that said, essentially, that the administration was kidding itself in trying to say that there was some way around the law here. They were trying to give a legal green light to CIA interrogators to torture people, but that green light, he said, was a sham. After the Obama administration released those sham memos from the Bush administration, Philip Zelikow disclosed that he had written this dissent. He said he had written this dissent at the time, but he said, I cannot disclose it to you because the Bush administration tried to cover it up and pretend like it never existed. I heard the memo was not considered appropriate for further discussion and that copies of my memo should be collected and destroyed. Philip Zelikow said that the White House attempted to collect and destroy all the existing copies of this memo in which he called bullpucky on how the Bush administration was trying to say torture was legal. Uh, I got a chance to ask him about that on this show. Why do you think they tried to destroy every copy of the memo um, that they knew existed? And how did you find out that they did try to destroy copies of the memo? Well, I found out because I was told, uh, I mean, we're, we're trying to collect these and destroy them. And you have a copy, don't you? Mm. But I, uh, the, uh, 
um, I know that copies were retained in, uh, in my building. I think copies still exist. Why would they destroy them? Um, that's a question they'll have to answer. Obviously, if you want, you want to eliminate records because you don't want people to be able to find them. Am I right in thinking that they would want to erase any um, evidence of the existence of a dissenting view within the administration because it would undercut the legal authority of the advice in those memos, the advice that, the, that those techniques would be legal? That's what I thought at the time. I had the same reaction you did, um, but I don't know why they wanted to do it. Within the George W. Bush administration, they wrote a legal justification for torture. There was dissent within the administration on that. The Bush administration disagreed with the dissent. They tried to eliminate evidence that that dissent ever existed. And today, that dissent came to light. Philip Zelikow's memo, tearing apart the legal justifications for torture that the Bush administration was counting on to say that torture was legal. This memo that was circulated and read and which they attempted to make disappear during the Bush administration, now it is out in the light of day. And if the Republican Party were still the Republican Party of John McCain, this would open up a whole new can of political worms. Because the Obama administration, remember, looked into Bush administration-ordered torture, and they decided not to prosecute any of it. They decided effectively that the Bush administration was operating on good faith when they ordered torture. They thought it was legal. Probably not. Actually, it turns out they had good reason to know it was not legal. So that means it was a crime. It was probably a war crime, not to put too fine a point on it. And that is something that we are legally obligated to prosecute in this country. This reopens the whole question of the legal liability for torture that was administered by the previous administration. The Democratic Party will be split by this because the White House politically doesn't want to deal with it, even if, it, even if it's wrong and even if they know it's wrong. And the Republican Party still has to figure out who it is. Is the Republican Party still the party of John McCain, which has now the opportunity to outflank the president on a matter of principle here, where the White House knows what the right thing to do is, but they don't want to do it? Or are the Republicans still the party of George W. Bush and Mitt Romney, who thinks torture is okay? It's got check time. I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as five $5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Reporting on President Barack Obama's recent trip to Afghanistan on May 2nd, the New York Times' Alyssa Rubin wrote, quote, The trip communicated something of vital importance to Afghans, reassurance that the United States is not in an all-out scramble to get away, close quote. But are reassurances that the U.S. is not leaving really vitally important to Afghans? A poll taken in 2010 on behalf of the Washington Post 
ABC, the BBC, and the German broadcaster ARD found that 55% of the Afghan public supported the rapid withdrawal of foreign troops. A 2011 poll by the International Council on Security and Development found that 76% of respondents in the north of Afghanistan believed NATO military operations were bad for the Afghan people, as did 87% of respondents in the south. A March 2012 poll by the German Institute for Social Research and Statistical Analysis reported 60% support for early withdrawal of U.S. forces. Based on the available evidence, it sounds like news that Americans plan to stay in their country is of vital importance to Afghans. But that news will likely be anything but reassuring to them. Yesterday, President Obama goes to Afghanistan. As usual, they're so proud that they snuck in in the middle of the night. Oh, it was a secret, secret trip, and the media eats it up. They're like, I drink your milkshake. Oh, it was a secret trip. That sounds so sexy. Now, the reality is that it's a secret trip because our occupation has been a disaster. If we let them know we were coming, they might try to kill our president. What happened? I thought that we were, that we were making progress. This is what Bush used to tell us. This is what President Obama tells us. We're making such great progress that we had to sneak into the country in the middle of the night and then run away before anybody found out we were there. Oh, okay, wow. I feel really reassured. What, how many years after we started that war? 11 years after we started that war? That uh, it's going so well that we're bragging about how secret it is? Imagine after World War II, President has to brag about how he snuck into Japan or West Germany. We haven't won these wars, but it doesn't matter. President Obama is going to declare a victory in 800 different ways. Let's watch. It was here, in Afghanistan, where Osama bin Laden established a safe haven for his terrorist organization. It was here in Afghanistan, where Al-Qaeda brought new recruits, trained them, and plotted acts of terror. It was here, from within these borders, that Al-Qaeda launched the attacks that killed nearly 3,000 innocent men, women, and children. Well, he's right. It was uh, there that bin Laden, uh, you know, had his camp, obviously, Al-Qaeda, the base. And uh, we also had him cornered in uh, Tora Bora at one point. Of course, uh, the Bush administration chose not to send more troops after him. So, look, it is not an accident that President Obama happens to go sign this agreement with the Afghan government, by the way, to stay all the way until 2024 in Afghanistan on the anniversary of killing bin Laden. This is uh, basically his aircraft carrier landing. Now the difference is when President Bush did the aircraft carrier landing about Iraq and declared it mission accomplished, it was nowhere near accomplished. In this case, we did kill bin Laden. We did drive him and Al-Qaeda from Afghanistan, by the way, into the open arms of Pakistan. Now, so is it a political trip? Definitely. If, is he being a little like Republicans in how he's campaigning on this? Yes. Is it the right thing to do in terms of politics? Absolutely. Because look, what are you going to do? What, you're going to do unilateral disarmament in politics where you're just not going to brag about your accomplishments? Why would you do that? It doesn't make any sense. And that's why he's saying, no, you know, if they bragged about things they didn't even do, I'm certainly going to brag about the things I did do. 
The problem here, when you're looking at, out, at it in, outside of the context of politics and, and in the terms of policy, is that President Obama, being the masterful politician that he is, is going to try to give you both sides and get credit for both sides, for being, bringing us peace and ending the war in Afghanistan and staying there for nearly forever. Watch. We broke the Taliban's momentum. We've built strong Afghan security forces. We've devastated al-Qaeda's leadership, taking out over 20 of their top 30 leaders. And one year ago, from base here in Afghanistan, our troops launched the operation that killed Osama bin Laden. The goal that I set to defeat al-Qaeda and deny it a chance to rebuild is now within our reach. My fellow Americans, we've traveled through more than a decade under the dark cloud of war. Yet here, in the pre-dawn darkness of Afghanistan, we can see the light of a new day on the horizon. Light of a new day on the horizon. Boy, that new day is really, really far away. We're going to withdraw most of our troops from, uh, in 2014, but for another 10 years, we stay there, so-called training troops and doing counterinsurgency. In other words, we've got a base there. We're still in Afghanistan. So that if you're seeing the light at the end of that tunnel, I don't know that I can see it with you. Maybe my vision isn't that good. You know, I will be 54 years old when we withdraw from Afghanistan if they follow this timeline. By the way, uh, what do Americans think about this? Already we're at a point where 60% of Americans say we should leave immediately. And that question is framed in a way where they ask him, hey, shouldn't we stay long enough to at least uh, get uh, s stabilize Afghanistan. Only 32% say stabilize Afghanistan. 60% say, no, whoever wants to stay, stay, stay. Whoever wants to run, 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 run. Let's get the hell out of there, okay? That is as favorable a framing as I have ever seen in favor of staying in Afghanistan. And still by a two to one margin, Americans say, no, let's leave immediately. And our president says, see, I brought you peace. And we will leave 12 years from now. I don't know what tomorrow's bringing I got a singular impression Things are moving too fast I'm gliding smooth as a figure skater I'm riding hot as a rocket blast I just expected it ten years later I got a singular impression Things are moving too fast And you say, oh no Step on the brakes, do whatever it takes, but stop this train. Slow, slow, the light's turning red. But I say, no, no, whatever I do, I barrel on through, and I don't complain. No matter what I try, I'm flying full speed ahead. Another week, another errant U.S. bomb in Afghanistan. Last week, a U.S. airstrike killed six members of a single family, all civilians. This week, another airstrike killed 14 more civilians. The people of Afghanistan have been living under this hellish rain for more than 10 years now, and Obama's signing of the strategic agreement with Karzai recently isn't bringing the rain to a halt, nor will it mean the departure of all U.S. troops. Instead, as many as 20,000 U.S. trainers and special forces will remain in Afghanistan at least until the year 2024. That's why some Afghans are calling this arrangement an Afghan Okinawa. 
the Afghanistan peace volunteers just issued a statement demanding the withdrawal of all U.S. troops. Some may applaud Obama's midnight approval of an Afghan Okinawa, the group said, but please respect our humanity when we say that we don't. The group added, we detest the epaulets, the weapons, the salutes, the hubris, the stealth, and the Orwellian words in English and in Dari that violate our yearning for truth. The new French government has agreed to heed this call and to withdraw all its troops by year's end. If our electoral system here in the U.S. wasn't so messed up, we'd have a choice of a major candidate who would promise to do the same thing. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. Lewis, what would you say is the number one reason people should tune into the David Pakman show if they like Jay Tomlinson's Best of the Left podcast? I mean, I see it completely differently from, from someone who's just watching it. Yeah, well, but if I was asking someone else's opinion for the promo... I don't even watch our show, so how can I answer that question? I do not watch our show. So Lewis is, isn't even a fan of the show. <laughs> Maybe the answer is Lewis doesn't actually like Can you this be show. a fan of the show? I mean, are you? Can, isn't that kind of stupid to be a fan of your own show? I'm a huge fan of this show. <laughs> of course. That's like being a fan of yourself. You're like a narcissist. What, do you put pictures up of yourself at home, too? Well, if that doesn't make you curious, I don't know what will. Check out The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. A cat general says the war on string may be unwinnable. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Operation Iron Paw leader General Bonkers told reporters at a press conference today that the war on string may be unwinnable. The general reported that enemy string is now as strong or possibly stronger than ever, noting that traditional tactics such as pouncing have proven largely ineffective against this new type of dangling and wiggling enemy. Said General Bonkers... General Bonkers has caused a firestorm of controversy among cat officials who warned that his statements could embolden String. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio News, online at For the 80% of you who listen to this program via the enhanced version of the show, which supports chapter markers, the following clip will include visual elements. This is one of those rare days where the daily schedule put out by the White House about the whereabouts of the President of the United States turned out to be a deliberate fabrication because for security reasons, the President today made an overseas trip under the veil of secrecy. It is always dramatic when this happens, but it is, of course, not unprecedented. Uh, in modern times, in fact, this is essentially standard operating procedure now for presidents visiting America's various war zones. Shortly after the 2008 election, uh, in which Barack Obama was, of course, elected president, so after the election, but before the new president had been sworn in, in December of 2008, then still president George W. Bush took one of these surprise trips. Uh, unannounced trips to Baghdad. It was December 14th, 2008, and that's when this happened. 
شكرا جزيلا Yes. Okay, everybody calm down for a minute. First of all, thank you for apologizing on behalf of the Iraqi people. It doesn't bother me. And if you want some, if you want the facts, it's a size 10 shoe that he threw. <laughs> Boy, if you were not surprised enough to find out that the president had, surprise, gone to Iraq unexpectedly, the president having a shoe hurled at him once he was in Iraq was definitely a surprise that day. Uh, when, when you look at the official transcript from this, we actually posted a link to it um, on our blog tonight so you can see it. When you go through the transcript of this event, when you get to the part where the guy throws the shoe at President Bush, it's described in the transcript as, quote, audience interruption. <laughs> Understatement much? Uh, what President Bush was in Baghdad to do that day was to sign the Status of Forces Agreement between the United States and Iraqi governments, which essentially committed the United States to end our war in Iraq. It was an agreement that President Obama then followed through on. The last U.S. troops, of course, left Iraq in December. Well, today in Afghanistan, it was not a status of forces agreement. It was called instead a strategic partnership agreement between the U.S. and the Afghan governments. But essentially, the idea is the same. It is to commit both of our countries to a plan by which the United States will end our war there. Today, I signed a historic agreement between the United States and Afghanistan that defines a new kind of relationship between our countries. A future in which Afghans are responsible for the security of their nation, and we build an equal partnership between two sovereign states. A future in which war ends and a new chapter begins. As we move forward, some people will ask why we need a firm timeline. The answer is clear. Our goal is not to build a country in America's image or to eradicate every vestige of the Taliban. These objectives would require many more years, many more dollars, and most importantly, many more American lives. Our goal is to destroy Al-Qaeda, and we are on a path to do exactly that. Afghans want to assert their sovereignty and build a lasting peace. That requires a clear timeline to wind down the war. The agreement we signed today sends a clear message to the Afghan people. As you stand up, you will not stand alone. Within this framework, we'll work with the Afghans to determine what support they need to accomplish two narrow security missions beyond 2014, counterterrorism and continued training. But we will not build permanent bases in this country, nor will we be patrolling its cities and mountains. That will be the job of the Afghan people. I recognize that many Americans are tired of war. As president, nothing is more wrenching than signing a letter to a family of the fallen. We're looking into the eyes of a child who will grow up without a mother or father. I will not keep Americans in harm's way a single day longer than is absolutely required for our national security. But we must finish the job we started in Afghanistan and end this war responsibly. 
Was President Obama speaking tonight live from Afghanistan about the strategic partnership agreement he just signed with Afghan President Hamid Karzai to essentially spell out how America's longest war, our war in Afghanistan, ends. Now, unlike the end of the Iraq War Agreement that President Bush signed on shoe-throwing Sunday back in 2008, uh, the Afghanistan Agreement promises continuing American involvement in Afghanistan for another 10 years after the troops leave. That means training, that means some unspecified support, it means money. It is not supposed to mean American war fighting, but still. Afghanistan has pretty much been in a continuous state of warfare for more than 30 years now, and if we are promising to stay involved through 2024 through 2024, frankly, that means there is a six-year-old alive somewhere in America today for whom this speech and this agreement today means that they will be spending the summer of 2024 in Kandahar. Contrast that with Iraq, where we've got an embassy now, but other than that, pretty much bupkis. The president's secret trip to Afghanistan today, though, was not just to sign this agreement about the end of the war. The White House acknowledges that the president could have just as easily signed the agreement in Washington. There was no technical need to be there in person. But the other reason for the president to make this trip to Afghanistan today is clearly because of today's date. We can report the president will announce that Osama bin Laden is in fact dead. That Osama bin Laden is dead. That is the major development tonight. Uh, something the United States has sought to accomplish since the deadly attacks on 9-11. I want to take a moment and show you this picture. We showed it briefly, but I want to go back here. Uh, this is across the street from the White House in Washington. today. It is not an accident that the president is marking the anniversary of the death of Osama bin Laden by being in Afghanistan. The 9-11 attacks on the United States were planned and directed and carried out by the Al-Qaeda organization that was headquartered in Afghanistan, that trained its membership in Afghanistan, that was given sanctuary by the Afghan government, and that was led by Osama bin Laden. And that is why within three and a half weeks of the 9-11 attacks, U.S. forces were on the ground in Afghanistan. By five weeks after that, the Taliban was gone from the Afghan capital of Kabul. And four weeks after that, a military operation in Tora Bora, in the mountains between Afghanistan Afghanistan and Pakistan was thought to have a chance of killing this man, killing Osama bin Laden. But bin Laden was allowed to escape from Tora Bora into Pakistan, into the wind, to escape also any real sense that the United States had a continuing bullseye on him. I, I don't know where he is, nor, you know, I just don't spend that much time on him, Kelly, to be honest with you. I truly am not that concerned about him. After losing bin Laden at Tora Bora, the Bush administration never again got a beat on him. George W. Bush's former CIA director, Michael Hayden, told Time magazine this week, quote, I can only speak with authority through February 15th, 2009. But at that point, when people would ask, when's the last time you really knew where he was? My answer was Tora Bora in 2001. A little over a year after losing him at Tora Bora, the Bush administration had moved on in a big way. They had already started a whole new unrelated war in Iraq. The defining and radical assertion of the George W. Bush era was A, that the United States would now start preemptive 
unprovoked wars. And B, we would fight terrorism, not just by fighting terrorists, not just by fighting terrorist groups, but by fighting the whole world, remaking the world in America's image. You're either with us or against us. We will topple unfriendly governments. We will stand up new governments. We will stand up whole new kinds of government that have never before existed in areas where we are trying to install it. We will wage global war. They called it a global war on terror. A global war justified by 9-11. But as for the people who attacked us on 9-11? So I, I don't know where he is. Nor do, you know, I just don't spend that much time on him, Kelly, to be honest with you. I when it came time for a new president after George W. Bush, the Democratic critique of that era's neoconservative adventures, specifically the Barack Obama Democratic critique of that era's neoconservative adventures, um, was that actually Osama bin Laden is important. The idea of a global war to remake the world in our image is folly. And what we ought to wage instead is a war against those who attacked us on 9-11. Al-Qaeda specifically should be the target. Its leader, Osama bin Laden, really should be a priority for the United States. The president should spend some time thinking about Osama bin Laden. That was the sharp break proposed by the new president after George W. Bush. And honestly, to the chagrin of many people who had been alarmed by the expansion of executive power in the George W. Bush administration, the Obama administration has not represented a significant break from that. The Obama administration radically, for example, expanded the use of assassin assassination by drone. The number of drone strikes in Pakistan spiked in 2009 once President Obama took over from President Bush. And then in 2010, those already spiked numbers from 2009 doubled. This was not going to be a more pacifist approach under President Obama. President Obama, for another example, tripled the number of troops in Afghanistan. The Obama administration has not thrown less American weight around and has not thrown it away in a less unilateral way in terms of executive authority. The Obama administration has just thrown American weight around in a much more specific direction. It was not a difference in aggression. It was a difference in focus. And so for this president in particular, it makes sense that on the anniversary of Osama bin Laden's death, he would put himself in Afghanistan. He would explicitly, with this trip there today, tie the end of the war in Afghanistan to the killing of the head of al-Qaeda. And because the news gods are numerologists, uh, it is, of course, also perfect for us understanding the sharp and specific turn we have taken as a country on national security under this new president. It, it is just as much key to understanding that. Uh, that today's announcement about the end of the Afghanistan war is not just on the anniversary of Osama bin Laden's death. This announcement today about the end of the Afghanistan war is also on the anniversary of this. This is an NBC News special report. A presidential address. Here is Tom Brokaw. Good evening. Tonight, President Bush speaks to the nation from the aircraft carrier USS Abraham Lincoln which has been at sea for almost 10 months, much of that time in the Persian Gulf. A victorious commander-in-chief thanking all men and women in uniform for a mission accomplished. That was nine years ago today. The previous president put on a flight suit, pretended to fly a jet onto the deck of an aircraft carrier that was parked off the coast of San Diego, and standing under a banner that read, Mission Accomplished, he declared that in the Battle of Iraq, the United States and our allies have prevailed. That was less than three months into what turned out to be an eight-and-a-half-year-long war. What President George W. Bush was celebrating on that aircraft carrier nine years ago today 
was that we had successfully invaded Iraq. We had successfully started a second simultaneous land war alongside the one he was still muddling through in Afghanistan while he didn't pay very much attention to Osama bin Laden. And now, with another presidential election campaign underway, the new president, President Obama, is celebrating in his own way, having decapitated al-Qaeda and having signed the framework for the second of George W. Bush's wars that he is ending. And presumably he's also celebrating his good fortune of running against a Republican opponent this year who chose as his spokesperson on these issues, on today of all days, this guy, Dan Senor. There he is in Iraq before, there he is here on TV today. The face of public relations for George W. Bush's invasion of Iraq, now the face of national security public relations for the Mitt Romney for President campaign. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. The Pentagon, at least some people there, can't get straight that Islam isn't the enemy of the U.S. As Wired Magazine just revealed, the Pentagon's Joint Forces Staff College gave an officer's course that advocated all-out war on Islam. Taught by Army Lieutenant Colonel Matthew Dooley, the course on counter-jihad insisted that there's no such thing as moderate Islam. This barbaric ideology will no longer be tolerated, he taught. He also said that the Geneva Conventions no longer apply, a theory he must have picked up on from the old Bush crew of Dick Cheney, John Yoo, David Addington, and Alberto Gonzalez. The U.S. can attack civilians with impunity, he taught, and he invoked what he called, and get this, the historical precedents of Dresden, Tokyo, Hiroshima, Nagasaki and recommended that they be applied to Islam's holiest cities so as to bring about Mecca and Medina's destruction. He also told officers incorrectly that Obama had admitted being a Muslim and that this could well make the commander-in-chief some sort of traitor. The course has since been canceled, and military colleges have been instructed to stop teaching such things, but Dooley continues to be on the faculty at the Joint Forces Staff College, and some of the officers he taught have now risen up the ranks. This doesn't make me comfortable, nor should it make the commander-in-chief. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. Shut down, fall asleep. The more you hold, the less you keep. Untie your concern. The stronger the grip, the more you'll burn. Board up the west side. It feels like it's coming round. Batten down the east side. It feels like it's coming. It feels like it's coming. Down to this day. 
So listen, England, we have a special relationship, right? And that doesn't just mean hand jobs under the table at the G8 summits and going to war with us even when it's just because we're bored. It's more than that, right? We can come to you for advice, right? A little bit of fatherly know-how, a little bit of paternal what for. I know we ran away from home years ago while screaming, You're not the boss of me! But now we're all grown up and we, uh, we need a little help. So here's the question. How do you let go of an empire? Because we know we need to, but it's really fucking hard. So far, we seem willing to let our entire country collapse into a pile of broken infrastructure, environmentally gutted lands, and Motley Crue reunion tours, as long as it means we can keep our 900 military bases around the world. Our economy is filled with debt, our people are filled with Kentucky Fried Chicken, our chicken is filled with hormones, our hormones are filled with mercury, and we don't know what mercury is filled with because we defunded NASA in order to pay the million dollar bonuses of the corporate sacks of shit bankrupting us on the home front. Fuck exploring the heavens and furthering mankind. We need to pay for Lloyd Blankfein's girlfriend's expensive sushi habit. So how'd you do it? How'd you give up your addiction to thinking you police the world and control the globe? I'm not saying it was easy for you. I know you had to be slapped in the face a few dozen times, too, before you backed off. But I just thought you might have some tips, little advice. Is the trick to keep one foot in the imperialist waters at all times, kind of like quitting cigarettes but still having one on special occasions? You know, you find yourself at 3 a.m. on New Year's morning with your pants missing and an empty bottle of Jack on your lap, and you think, why not drop a couple of bombs on Afghanistan? You know, just for old time's sake. No one will know. Is that the best way to do it? Because we have to come up with something. We've lost all our friends. We've spent all our money. We've already got two tickets for invading foreign lands while under the influence. We crashed mom car, we accidentally killed all our pets, turns out wolves aren't immune to cancer like we thought they were, we have illegitimate children all over the world, half of them we haven't even met, we just send them a Hallmark card and some guns for their birthday once a year, we're pretty close to rock bottom, but still, there's nothing like that high of true hegemony, you know, what, what, we, we can, we can quit anytime we want. And finally, you can't say U.S. corporate media ignore the violence carried out in Americans' names. There it is, if you look, in the paper day after day. But desensitizing people to horrors might be more dangerous than ignoring them, and some types of coverage seem to encourage the acceptance of the unacceptable. The Washington Post published a story on May 7th that began, quote, NATO airstrikes killed Afghan civilians in two provinces, local officials reported Monday, and at least two dozen others died when floods swept through villages in a third province, close quote. Now, it might be accurate, but you don't hear too many reports of murders that also note how many people died of the flu that day. 
The causes of death are too disparate to be rolled up into one story. With this rendering, the post makes it sound like airstrikes from an occupying military are just part of the landscape in Afghanistan, a sort of force of nature, certainly nothing the reader should feel any relationship to any more than they would a landslide. Likewise, in the New York Times on May 9th, a headline announced, Winter killed at least 100 Afghan refugee children, study estimates. But the children weren't killed by winter or claimed by the cold, as the story had it. They died from exposure, part of the horrific conditions they endure in refugee camps they live in, in hopes of escaping the effects of the U.S. NATO-led war. Where do you go when the cold days come? Do you just leave town? Do you pack up and run? Or do you stay? Do you stay and watch the seasons shift? Do you have the patience to wait for the clouds to dip? Tell me, baby, there's mystery in your eyes. Every day between now and Election Day in November, you're going to hear something like, the Romney campaign today did blah, 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 or the Obama campaign today did blah, blah, blah. It's not just things done or said by the candidate. It's actually news made by the campaign in some way. But there is a practical, logistical, nuts and bolts way that campaigns do stuff that make news. And it's a little bit weird when you are participating in it. I mean, covering the campaign firsthand right now pretty much means doing this every day. to dial into the Romney campaign conference call today. This was the actual sound from the start of that conference call. This is what covering the campaign is like now. And yes, I do think this is the Muzak version of Candle in the Wind by Elton John. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining the Obama's Failed Foreign Policy Conference Call. <laughs> Your host for today, Amanda Henneberg, will now begin. Hey guys, it's Amanda from the campaign. Thanks so much for getting on the call. I have with me here um, Alex Wong, who's a part of our policy shop. Um, and additionally, we have Dan Senor on the line, Ambassador Pierre Prosper, and Secretary John Lehman. And I am going to turn it over to Dan Senor. That's what it's like. That's what it's like. They do these calls almost every day, and everybody calls in and listens to what they have to say, and that's how we all report what the campaign said today. You know, once upon a time, I guess it was faxing. Every once in a while, it still is the candidate himself or herself talking in the back of the bus or in the back of the plane with reporters. Uh, but mostly, it's like this on speakerphone. And the reason they they did that, what did, what did they call this one again today? What did they call it? Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining the Obama's Failed Foreign Policy Conference Call. Your host for today, Amanda Hennepin. <laughs> the Hedeberg, reason they did begin. the Obama's Failed Foreign Policy Conference Call today uh, is because they're doing something that they call bracketing. Uh, wherever the, uh, whenever the Obama administration does something, the Romney campaign plans a response thing on the same subject. So Vice President Biden laying out the Obama campaign's narrative on foreign policy today. And then the Romney conference call is about giving the Romney campaign counter-narrative on that same subject, on foreign policy. Here was the problem today, though, other than the candle and the wind thing. <laughs> the Obama campaign Vice President Biden narrative on foreign policy today 
turns out, is exactly the same as the supposed counter-narrative from the Romney campaign. Here's what Vice President said today. Governor Romney, I think, is counting on collective amnesia of the American people. Americans know. Americans know. But we can't go back to the future. Back to a foreign policy that would have America go it alone. Shout to the world you're either with us or against us. Lash out first and ask the hard questions later, if they get asked at all. Governor Romney's national security policies, uh, in our view, would return us to a past we've worked so hard to move beyond. In other words, the charge from the Obama-Biden campaign is that Mitt Romney has George W. Bush's foreign policy agenda. He would take us back to George W. Bush's foreign policy. Now, Mitt Romney has 24 announced advisors on foreign policy. 17 of the 24 are George W. Bush administration foreign policy people. And the Obama campaign sees that as a vulnerability. That was their narrative today, hitting Mitt Romney for being advised by all these George W. Bush people. The counter-narrative from the Romney campaign on that? We have Dan Senor on the line, Ambassador Pierre Prosper, and Secretary John Lehman. Two of the three Romney advisors that the Romney campaign put out today to counter the narrative that Mr. Romney is going to have a George W. Bush foreign policy. Two of those Romney advisors, two of the three, were George W. Bush foreign policy guys, Dan Senor and Pierre Prosper. Dan Senor was the guy in charge of telling everybody that the Iraq war was awesome throughout 2003 and 2004. And Pierre Prosper was appointed by George W. Bush to be America's ambassador to the world on war crimes issues while the Bush administration was setting up secret prisons and torturing people all over the world. But lest you believe that Mitt Romney's foreign policy will be anything like George W. Bush's foreign policy, let these George W. Bush administration officials who are advising Mitt Romney assure you that that is definitely not the case. Jay, this is Chad calling from Richmond, Virginia. I just wanted to call and say how excited I was to see the president come out in favor of marriage equality in his recent interview with ABC. I got to see Obama speak at a rally on Saturday on Richmond, and I saw Biden's TV comments on Sunday, and I knew it was going to be a monumental week. I know there's lots of progressives that are probably going to say, oh, he's not doing enough, or he should have done this years ago. And, you know, some pundits are probably even going to go so far as to say it's no big deal at all. They're wrong. It is a huge deal. As a gay man, I've been subjected to constant stigma and ridicule my entire life. Growing up was tough, but I finally have a family who's accepting, a friend who are supportive, and a fiancé who loves me. Hearing the president say that he supports me and my rights feels good from where I'm sitting. Also, I'm probably a little bit biased. It reminds me that I am just like everybody else, and the president can see that, too. It reminds me why I voted for him. Anyway, thanks for everything you do, Jay, and keep up the good work. Hey there, Jay. This is Shane Fender from Spokane, Washington. I've been listening to the podcast for about four months now, and I just listened to your most recent podcast on um, global warming. <laughs> so basically, I just wanted to um, put out there that this world is 
becoming very troubling to live in. There's separations on everything from what we wear, what we believe religiously and politically, economic stability methods, civil rights. It, it's hard to deal with. So I thought, you know, why bring yet another kid into this mess? They're going to have to deal with an even more overpopulated world. Global warming should be enough said, but that's going to be terrible for people later on. I mean, it's already starting to hit now, but imagine what it's going to be like in 50 years when they're 30 years old or so. Uh, basically, I just wanted to say um, I'm completely lost. I don't want to bring a kid into this world, and I don't think anyone else should really have to. Or at least they shouldn't have to bring in eight, nine, ten kids. Anyways, I love your show. Have a good day, and I'll try to get back at you later. Hi. I really wanted to respond to Dave in Western Massachusetts because listening to his message really... Gosh, it was just so infuriating. And also, on the same day that I listened, I also came across a theory on describing straight white male privilege that I think will ring true with a lot of a lot of your listeners and hopefully kind of illuminate them on how easy they do have it, even in periods of economic hardship. So basically, the theory goes, if you are a straight white male, you basically start life at the lowest, easiest difficulty setting. Any extra, you know, if you're a straight white female, you start it a little harder. And then a straight person of color, um, you know, harder than that, and so on and so forth. And also, as a straight white male, you gain points easier than for example, a gay minority female setting and are allowed to progress within the game without much confrontation, without many questions, and it's just a generally much cooler life. So I hope that Dave hears this and recognizes that even even though he is struggling financially or didn't get the service job that he desperately wanted, Eventually, things are going to be, or overall, things are going to be much easier for him than for anyone else. So, thanks. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So a few things today, but first of all, I, I just want to follow up on that last voicemail that was played from the uh, the nameless female who uh, was relating the story of the article that she had just read. It just so happens that I actually read the same article. It was passed along to me by a friend, and so we have sort of a great minds thinking alike sort of situation going on. And and I think she did about as good of a job as you could expect of summarizing a, a, an article in just a minute and a half or however quickly she did it. But just to clarify a little bit, the premise of the article was how to talk about uh, what 
life is like for a straight white male without using the word privilege because that word just has, you know, it, it, it has this effect on people. And so you want to try to be able to get across the message without causing straight white males or, or people with, with any variety of privilege, preventing them from, you know, having that like just visceral backlash against the word. And we even had a conversation briefly about that phenomenon on the show and someone pointed out that it just – it has this feeling, even if it's not meant this way, it just feels a little accusatory for you know a variety of reasons. And so if that's how it feels, that feels bad and then you sort of reject the premise and, and you get nowhere uh, constructive. So, so the article was trying to get around that and, and so they, they created a somewhat elaborate analogy – to a sort of a massive role-playing game that you would play on the computer or a video game system. And that's, that's where uh, the caller got into it, was saying that life is like playing one of these video games where it's your job to go on quests and collect items and fight enemies and all of those sorts of things. But when you start the game, you get to choose your difficulty setting. That's pretty normal for video games. And so for straight white males, you know, of course in real life, you don't get to choose your own difficulty setting, but for straight white males, your difficulty setting is at easy. (laughs) You're, you're at the easiest setting in America in the 21st century. That's, that's just where we are right now because of our circumstances. And it doesn't mean that you don't have to play the game. It doesn't mean you don't have to fight the enemies. It doesn't mean you don't have to go on the quests. It doesn't mean that everything's handed to you. It doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to win. You know, you can, st- you can play the game on the easiest level and you could still lose. You could still get killed. You could still, uh, you know, have people who are playing the game on harder settings do better than you. All of that is possible. And, and it, it, so this analogy allows to kind of explore that idea of, of, you know, the idea that just because your life is easier than other people on average doesn't mean that your life is going to be better than all of those uh, people who have it harder than you. It doesn't mean that everything's going to be handed to you and so on. And, and I totally agree with the caller that I thought it was a, a really good uh, good analogy. And I will, I, I'll find that article. I'll link it in the show notes of this episode if you want to go read it for yourself. Secondly today, I'm speaking to you now from just before I leave for my uh, big trip. I'm going to be riding a bike 300 miles between New York and Washington, D.C. I raised over $2,800 for charity for doing this, and so now I actually have to do the work of riding the bike. So when this show drops into the feed, theoretically, I will be somewhere in the middle of Pennsylvania. So wish me well. I'm sure I'm doing fine. If you missed the whole story of the fundraising drive, it's for uh, climate change. I'm fundraising for three different uh, climate change organizations. I reached my goal. No one should feel overly compelled to help me uh, you know, go any further. But if I'm doing this ride and you think, hey, I, I meant to give uh, before or I didn't hear about that and I should give, uh, just go to climateride.org and then you can just search for my name, which is Jay. And I'm, I think only three J's come up and I'm the only person on the list who spells his name with an exclamation point at the end. So it's pretty easy to pick me out. You can donate right there to the cause and it would be greatly appreciated. Of course, thanks again to everyone who donated before, which allowed me to get to this point. It allowed me to raise all the money that I did and I get to go on this ride, which 
it's probably going to be painful in a lot of ways, but is undoubtedly going to be epic and amazing and uh, utterly enjoyable. So the next time you hear from me, it will be after the ride has ended and I'll be in Washington, D.C. And um, I'll let you know how it went then. So that's it for today. Thanks again for all the support in all the variety of ways. I mean, I've been asking a lot of you guys recently, and and you've really been coming through. I, I asked for donations for this uh, climate change fundraiser. I asked for donations for Our Blue Media fundraiser. I continue to ask for donations just for memberships and, and straight donations to keep the show going. And... All of that has been a success. So, you know, the, the show is still doing okay. The two fundraisers have, have been working out. Our Blue Media and the Climate Ride, it's, it's all a success so far. So just huge thanks to everyone for all of that support and in all the variety of ways that I've been asking. Um, of course, thanks to everyone for spreading the word about the show, just, you know, all, all the different ways, including uh, spreading the word of individual clips that you particularly like. We have it set up on the website so that you can share individual segments through your social networks. It's really easy and fun. And when you post awesome videos to your Facebook page, I'm sure all your friends will love you for it. You can also even donate your social media accounts to us, Facebook and Twitter, using donateyouraccount.com slash left. You can uh, donate those accounts, which allows us to post to your page a maximum of once a day. So we can't possibly uh, overrun your feed with best of left news or anything like that. But it, it allows you to just essentially automatically repost what what we post on our own site. And that helps us spread the word uh, through you to your network. So that is incredibly helpful. And of course, to stay tuned into the show between episodes, just sign up yourself uh, to the Best of the Left Facebook and Twitter pages. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you usually every third day unless I'm doing a giant charity bike ride from bestoftheleft.com. Black and white, you took apart a picture that wasn't right.